from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, June the 20th, 2019. This is episode 107, Embankment for the Unbanked. Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I am Jason Snell, and I am joined by Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. A little under the weather, so forgive me if I sound gross. Okay. I'm under the weather, too. It's up there. It's fog. It's up well, there. I mean, you know what I mean, Jason? Oh. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, then. Just like, aren't we all under the weather? They're very rarely weather under us. But anyway... um, Let's talk about something oh, weird boy. Facebook no did. No one cares about the weather, Jason. 107 <laughs> episodes in of talking about weird things Facebook has done. Facebook mm-hmm. said, hey, everybody, wouldn't it be great if we started a cryptocurrency and, and our own bank and basically controlled, in addition to all social relationships on planet Earth, we also controlled all uh, all transactions of a financial nature one day, because that's what uh, seems to be their big idea coming in 2020. It is Libra, a digital currency, and Calibra, a Facebook subsidiary to provide financial services for the Libra cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Didn't well, s- didn't see this one coming. <laughs> it's been rumored for a little while. I I think though there is some nuance here, right? And we are all totally right to look at this through skeptical eyes because Facebook doesn't have the best track record of really anything anymore. But uh, th- there there is some stuff here that I think is interesting. So why they are the the sort of company behind the technology in the beginning, it will be run by an association where this. Calibra, this Facebook subsidiary, is just one vote of a 29-member board. So it's not like – I mean, yes, Facebook, it is their thing, but they are going to cede control of it to this this larger group. And mm-hmm. if you look at the companies already on uh, – sort of on board for this, it, it seems like it's going to be – I mean, there, there are some companies here I don't like, right? Like Uber is in this. Uh, right. PayPal. MasterCard, right? Like, uh, there's still reason to be skeptical, but they they aren't saying uh, that this is going to be the uh, the Facebook Bitcoin, right? They are behind it, but they are going to be only one uh, one company in the driver's seat, which does make me feel better about it after reading this that they're not going to have complete control, which I think is good. And the um, one of the ways that they're pitching this is this idea of sort of like freedom for people in places that don't have access to banking, mm-hmm. um, which they refer to as the unbanked, which uh, Neil Patel from The Verge went off on that phrase. And I, I applauded don't, him for doing that. Like, yeah, I don't love that. <laughs> the unbanked, like, oh, no, the unclean people who don't have a bank account. They are the they are the like, I don't know, there's some whole process you have to go through where you get an embankment, I guess, which is when you are ushered into the bank and given your first banking. And I don't know that it's really weird. But the point is that, that you know, they want to tell a happy story about how uh, access to uh, a bank and uh, storing money is empowering. Uh, they talk about uh, like microtransactions and uh, and micro loans and things like that. And especially like the context of um, uh, efforts to to give uh, women more ability to start businesses, especially in places like Africa. Um, and it's all very empowering. And, and, and that sounds great. I, there is a part of me that also thinks this is everybody in the banking establishment saying, yes, yes, let's find a way to get everybody else in the world into a banking system. Uh, but at the same time, it is our kind of like global currency system. And like, I see, I see both sides of it. I just wish, honestly, it's just like, but it's Facebook. Like I, mm, yeah. I don't like that part of it. I, I appreciate that they they realize that they apparently need to kind of like wash this thing in other companies to make the stink of Facebook come off of it a little <laughs> bit. But definitely, I don't know. I don't know. Cryptocurrency, maybe. Also, by the way, they they say that this will not be a horrendous energy use to make uh, this cryptocurrency. Yeah, but that's a real. It's not a Bitcoin. Right. That's a real problem with Bitcoin is that as it has gone on, it takes more and more computational power to to mine Bitcoin. And that means more, you know, more 
electricity, more heat generated, and uh, it seems like they have some ideas to keep this from running away yeah. like Bitcoin did. Oh, well, we'll watch it. Maybe cryptocurrency, which we've been kind of... Uh, I saw a good thread about this, actually, that said that this was originally the vision for PayPal, and PayPal turned into something else. But the idea that... And that was Peter Thiel uh, with Elon Musk, right? right. Um, that That... What you see is every few years, somebody says, I've got an idea for a currency-related thing. And what they're really doing is putting down a bet that says, if I'm the person sitting in the chair when the music stops, I get to take a percentage of all global transactions, and I'm the richest Mm -hmm. person alive. And it hasn't happened yet, and it may never happen, but that's not going to stop people from trying, because if you hit that one... Even a portion of a portion of a portion of a share of whatever that cut is will be more money than anybody in the world has ever seen. So, sure. So this is Facebook shot at it, I guess. Uh, we'll see. I, I had a story uh, that I wanted to mention that came out of Wired uh, called "Choosing the Wrong Lane in the in the Race to 5G." And it's a technical tech story, but it also is a social tech story. And it says something about the priorities of American uh, wireless coverage that I think is worth mentioning, which is why I picked it for for the <laughs> show that's about picking headlines. Um, in 5G rollout, everybody's talking about 5G rollouts all over the world. But in the U.S., um, what the what we're, we're doing is we're making choices to emphasize something called millimeter wave, which is a portion of the spectrum that's really great for like fast mm-hmm. uh, transactions. And this is the way it's been sold in the U.S., especially. It's like super fast wireless connections. But they, the range is bad. So there's a huge infrastructure cost. And it really is for fairly dense areas or limited zones. So like you could put it in a hospital or you could put it in a city. But what it doesn't do is use the bandwidth that's more in the mid-range of bandwidth, which has not as much speed, but much greater coverage. Right. And uh, other countries are making different decisions. China, for example, which is a country in this way quite similar to the U.S. that has wide swaths of rural areas, has decided to do uh, mid-band 5G, and the U.S. is uh, not it's just like zero mid-band spectrum is available at auction for 5G. And what hit me about this is I – so I grew up in a rural area, and I saw some friends who live there, and they don't have LTE. In fact, I'm not entirely sure if they even have good 3G. They do have 3G. It took them a long time to get it. They were on edge networks for a very long time, but those have all been retired now. So, But like – I don't even know if they have LTE in most of that space. Their networking is terrible. And this is why. It's choices like this. I know it's hard to cover rural areas. It's wide swaths of land. But you see here an example of the U.S. prioritizing cities, um, prioritizing uh, you know these larger groups of uh, areas where there's already a lot of connectivity to get more connectivity. And kind of shirking its responsibility to all the people who live out in the hinterlands who who already may have a hard time getting a fast internet connection via a wired connection, right? Because a lot of rural areas, you can't get a fast cable or, uh, you know, uh, like, for heaven forbid, fiber kind of connection. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of people who live in rural areas in California who are on incredibly slow, low latent or high latency uh, satellite internet yep. is the yeah, only same, internet. Same here. Get. So I, I look at this and it's like, okay, so you're just piling on. You're making it so so they can't get cable. Uh, and they so they're stuck with satellite and they can't get fast uh, cellular either. And our priorities just seem kind of out of whack to me. Yeah, and there's problems too. This article doesn't really go into them, but there's problems with the bandwidth that is going to be used for 5G in the US, potentially interfering with things like weather satellites. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the, I, I just don't know that if the trade off for higher speed is was the right decision. And it seems like Honestly, it's kind of too late, at least for this initial rollout of 5G. You know, if you look at uh, cell companies, they're in big cities with 5G and some cities only in very specific areas. Like you said, the infrastructure needed is a little mind-blowing. I mean, instead of, you know, an area where you would have maybe three cell phone towers for LTE, 
you can have many, many more smaller 5G towers. Yeah. And that takes time and money. And I'm just not sure that that was the right decision, but we may be stuck with it for a long time. Yeah. The uh, By the way, the satellite thing is fascinating because it's not actually the, the bandwidth used to transmit. It's the bandwidth of... Uh, the sensors looking at things like water evaporation and things mm-hmm. like that that are at the same bandwidth, same uh, frequency as uh, as uh, these networks. So the idea is the networks are just going to swamp that signal and we're no longer going to be able to measure certain things in the, from space, which is just, yeah, also bad. Uh, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. That's what I'm saying. Um, uh story that made me laugh is about Google... <laughs> being a bunch of cheaters (laughs) and this is the genius the lyrics website uh they've got lyrics for various songs and you can look them up and they're annotated and all of that um they were convinced that google was stealing their lyrics and so they decided to do this thing where they put uh alternating uh smart smart uh uh uh, apostrophes basically and straight apostrophes in lyrics in a pattern that actually was morse code <laughs> um and just waited and watched and the morse code was for the fra- phrase red-handed and uh, <laughs> it turns out that that indeed google lyrics started to have these alternating straight and curved apostrophes showing that uh, Google's source for song lyrics was ultimately the genius song lyrics. Now, Google claims, and this is not a very good defense, that they have partners that they use as data sources for Google song lyrics. So they're basically saying, oh, I guess our partners stole your lyrics, but it wasn't us. We just show them to everyone and are a competitor. And now when people search for lyrics, instead of going to your site, which supports your business, they just read the lyrics on the Google search results page and never visit you. Uh, they didn't say that part out loud. Um, so yet to be seen quite quite what happens here. And it's funny because it's like, you know, it's not like Genius owns these these lyrics either, but there right. is absolutely like the way that they have done this and put this together, you know, somebody else is just lifting it. Now, I wrote a piece about how Apple shows lyrics in its apps that very clearly, like they've got sources that are some of these crowdsource databases that they license and put together. They're not official sources. I don't know why there isn't one. And I can tell, and, and Genius could have done this too, I suppose, by uh by having bad transcriptions by words phrases lines that are just misheard and for me it's very clear that they just got this wrong but uh it propagates somewhere so this is kind of a messy business but i think it is fascinating that that uh genius put in some work to quite rightly uh catch google red-handed that google sources are just lifting the work of genius and because it's google they're bypassing as i said earlier the uh they're, they're really suppressing people's opportunity to see genius pages because they're prom- preempting them with uh google lyric sheet yeah, it, google's answer to this like you said was not good and i think <laughs> they've announced I think they've they've made an announcement as well that they're going to do better in crediting where their lyrics come from. But but you're right. Anytime a data source gets pulled into the search results, so song lyrics used to search, you go to a website now, very often you just see it on the results page. If you're that company, uh, it's a problem for you. And, uh, and so I love that Genius's way to track this. I think it was really, really clever. But it's a real danger anytime Google adds something directly to search results that you could be Sherlock. Yeah, it's not it's not great. I mean, I just did a search for a a, a hit song, and in in Google, it just shows the uh, the lyrics. It also does yeah. say now source music's match down at the bottom. So that's them just saying uh, it's not us, it's them. We, mm-hmm. we, we didn't do it. We're just showing it to you here. But the end result is the same, right? Which is that you've got this giant box with all the lyrics in it, and then some videos. And then the Genius link. Whereas if I search on DuckDuckGo, I get uh, Genius is the second and third, actually, uh, source. AZLyrics.com is the first source for this. But regardless, you're going to click through. And it's so it's Google intercepting uh, a site's traffic while lifting its content. It's, it's just infuriating. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, cheaters, Morse code found you out. I do this occasionally, by the way, I'll just reveal something here. When I do my transcripts of, uh, Apple, 
financial calls every quarter, I will often put a very weird interpretation of a phrase somewhere. And I literally, I do that so that if somebody just rips off my transcript, I've got a sign that they did it. Mm. It's a little secret. So don't do that. Don't rip off my transcript is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> um, one more story, which is about Apple hedging its bets in terms of production in China with trade tensions rising. There's a Wall Street Journal report that says that Apple is asking its suppliers to consider whether they could shift the final assembly of some of Apple's products out of China. They're looking mostly in Southeast Asia, uh, so it wouldn't go far because so much of the supply chain is in East Asia. Uh, But this is Apple saying, you know, I think the number they say is something like about a third of what they're doing could possibly move like the Mac. The iPhone would actually be the hardest to to shift, but they could shift assembly of some of their other products to other places. And it's not a question of them actually doing it um, as much as trying to be, it looks like, prudent about like what if it becomes financially impossible for us to assemble these products in China because of an escalating trade war, whether that means that China does something to make it hard for Apple to be in the country as a way to threaten the U.S. or whether the U.S. raises tariffs on those products, making it you know financially untenable for Apple to import them from China. This is uh, one of the stories where I'm just I'm really glad this isn't my industry to worry about supply chain for building the iPhone, right? <laughs> building building the iPad. I, I think you're right. I don't know how far they can go. You know, Apple has experimented with this in the past with the 2013 Mac Pro. They assembled them in Texas. Uh, a lot of the parts came from overseas, and there was a story. Maybe we could dig it up for the show notes where they th- there was an issue with some of the screws they needed for the construction of the machine, and they couldn't find a, uh, a manufacturer of the screws in the United States, so they came from, from overseas. And anytime you're talking about a, a supply chain and the construction of these devices, it's so complex. I like think about a, a $3,000, $5,000, uh, you know, 2013 Mac Pro – I don't think about, oh, yeah, like where do the screws come from, right? Like that's just that's not something that enters my mind, but it is absolutely uh, make or break when it comes to uh, moving or changing anything. So I could see Apple wanting to do this. I could see it winning them political points in our current climate, but uh, I I hope they don't do that at the expense of, you know, ha- having trouble meeting demand in their popular products or needing to pass cost on to us as consumers. Nothing like being caught between uh, two enormous economies and political systems that are uh, having a spat and you're, you know, you're in the middle. So you're you're a tool for either of them to use. Um, Although, Stephen, you know who has made his entire career at dealing with things like extended supply chains in the tech industry? Tim Cook. It's literally True. been his entire career, yep. the, you know, so now he's Apple CEO, but he was always the supply chain guy and the operations mm-hmm. manager. So if there's somebody qualified to navigate Apple through this, it's Tim Cook. And good luck to him because I'm with you. Boy, that, that that's a tough business to be in, especially right now. And uh, I, I, there's a lot of reward there. But, you know, in the end, you know, there's only so much even a big company like Apple can do given whatever the opinions of uh of uh what is it uh donald trump and xi jinping uh want to you know what they want to do <laughs> like they want to mm-hmm. they want to fight <laughs> apple's not going to be able to stop them probably they can they can maybe like try to get in between them and go boys boys <laughs> but you know in the end it's a, t- it's a tough position to be in but if there's anybody who could handle it it's tim cook i think because it's his this is his bag this is what he does All right. um, Well, those are the stories. We're going to take a break for a sponsor, and then we will be back with the story you might have missed and our special guest for this episode. But first, let me tell you about our first sponsor. It is Direct Mail, an easy-to-use email marketing app designed exclusively for the Mac to help you create and send great-looking email newsletters. 
Email marketing, still incredibly cost-effective. Turns out people read email. Great way to reach your customers, great way to grow your business. And for the past 15 years, Mac users around the world have trusted the Direct Mail app to handle all their email marketing needs. It's designed just for the Mac, which means it's fast and easy to use, and works great with all the other apps and services you already use. With Direct Mail, you can grow your mailing list by creating email sign-up forms that you can add to your website or Facebook page. You can save time by integrating with over a 1,000 other apps and services on your Mac and the web, and you can have email campaigns sent automatically without you lifting a finger. And there's much more too. They have real human live chat customer support available to answer your questions. It's not a robot. It's a real human answering your questions. And Direct Mail is the number one top-rated email marketing app for the Mac. Five-star reviews on the App Store, GetApp, and elsewhere. It's trusted by small businesses, nonprofits, schools, and Fortune 500 companies alike. Direct Mail is free to download free to get started, and listeners of Download can save 10% off all the full feature pricing plans. So head over to directmailmac.com slash downloadfm to check it out. That's directmailmac.com slash downloadfm to get 10% off when you opt for a full feature plan. Thank you to Direct Mail for their support of Download and all of FM. All right, let's talk about the story you might have missed, something that might have flown under your radar but is worth mentioning. Radiohead... The band, I like Radiohead, they did something interesting this week. They Somebody stole a bunch of mini discs. Remember mini discs, Stephen? Are you too young <laughs> I, to remember mini discs? No. They're, they're in the Matrix. In the Matrix, yeah. they, they have a cool thing where it's like, I got data on a mini disc. And you're like, oh, oh yeah. 1999. A, fr- a, friend of mine, a friend of mine in high school was convinced it was the future. And it put, was not. You know, basically, <laughs> no, basically ripped all of his CDs onto mini discs. I was like, dude, what are you doing? So yeah. sometimes I remind him of that. Like I told you that was a bad idea. And, uh, you know, anyway, uh, uh, so, so what happened is Tom York of Radiohead had a mini disc archive with a bunch of recordings that, you know, they were making their recordings onto mini disc and, uh, they were, they were recording. Okay. Computer, which is their most critically acclaimed album. By the way, the Benz is better. <clears throat> Ooh, hot oh. Radiohead takes here. Hot take. Uh, anyway, somebody uh, stole it and said that they wanted $150,000 or they would release it on the internet. Uh, Radiohead's response, and you know, if you followed Radiohead at all, they of course released their album in rainbows on the internet, uh, unannounced, and said you could pay whatever you wanted to download it. That's among the things they've done. I think they've proven to be actually pretty clever and uh, and curious about how to use the internet. Uh, so what did they do? You guessed it. They took those 18 hours of mini-disc recordings <laughs> and just posted them on Bandcamp and said, pay us 18 pounds or whatever you like above that, and we will donate all of this money to charity, a uh, climate change advocacy, advocacy group called Extinction Rebellion. So basically, don't blackmail us. We'll just give that stuff away. Now, there are now a bunch of articles about what you should listen to on it, because quite honestly, it's 18 hours of band outtakes and stuff. Right. And yeah. I like Radiohead a lot, but I am not interested in listening to 18 hours of rambly band mini disc audio. Mm-hmm. So although the fact that it comes from mini disc very exciting. So uh uh, thank you to the people that I think Rolling Stone had one article about it that I saw, which is like, here's what you should listen to on the 18 hours of mini disc recordings. I'm like that. I like a curated. <laughs> give me a curated list of the rarities on here that might be interesting. The outtakes and alternate versions. And that sounds cool. But um, I just love that Radiohead's response to being blackmailed essentially was, yeah, we'll just uh, put it online. We don't care. 18 hours of uh, our stuff. And from a historical standpoint, this is their critically acclaimed, everybody loves it, one of the greatest albums of all time kind of thing. So to see, to have that out there in the public, is uh, it's kind of fun, even though it wasn't intentionally done. So good for them uh, for turning their back and instead turning on the, uh, on the uh, uh, person who was trying to blackmail them and instead uh, making some money for charity. That's awesome. Yeah. I love this story so much. It's great. It's great. It's great. So congratulations to Radiohead. All right. Here's what's going to happen. Steven's going to step away and we're going to bring in our special guest, uh, Natalie Jarvie from The Hollywood Reporter and a magical thing that's going to happen now. Will there be a sound effect? I don't know, but I have to uh, say goodbye to Steven now. Steven, goodbye. Bye, Jason. And now that Stephen is gone, uh, we are joined by, because it's a very tight uh, tight room today, There's only room for one person other than me at a time, and now Stephen has been replaced by Natalie Jarvie, 
reporter at the Hollywood Reporter. I guess you probably are like a tech uh, editor or something there now. What's your title? Let's get it right. <laughs> I'm our digital media editor. Digital media editor. And uh, basically, you are writing about what I think is one of the more interesting intersections of two industries, which is how technology and the entertainment industry are colliding in all sorts of ways. And uh, I, uh, we've had you on a bunch of times, and I thought I would get you on again because there's a lot of stuff. There's always a lot of stuff going on when it comes to digital media and uh, and how the tech industry and the entertainment industry are like buying each other or competing with each other, or I don't even know what. There's so much going on. Seems like there's something new every week, yeah. you know, this job changes like every six months, there's like an entirely new, you know, company doing something in this world that didn't exist before. Yeah. So I, I, I managed to come up with a bunch of stories for the last week that I thought we would just sort of step through and, and talk about um, interesting stuff. I wanted to start with J.J. Abrams. So one of the things that we've been following for a while now is this idea that J.J. Abrams, who people know he's directing the next Star Wars movie, he's a big director, he's also a big TV producer and has produced under his production company, Bad Robot, whole bunch of tv shows from a whole bunch of different places he's had deals in the past uh for film and tv and he was sort of like coming up as a uh as a free agent who could be put under a uh, a new contract by somebody and the question was like who was going to do it that apple was rumored to be one of the companies bidding for his services and it sounds like uh we may have found a winner here, which is Warner Media, which is owned by AT and T, and they're launching new, a new streaming service. They own HBO. They own a bunch of stuff, but they are perceived as being kind of behind on the streaming side. Um, and it sounds like uh, the report suggests they're going to be spending half a billion dollars to sign up J.J. Abrams. What do you think about this? Yeah, well, shout out to my wonderful colleague, Leslie Goldberg, who uh, first kind of broke this story on Monday that it was nearing an end, this race for J.J., Um you know, listen, it makes a lot of sense that Warner Media uh, needs content for this new platform and, you know, that they they need to lock in talent. Uh, you know, the the proliferation of all these new platforms means that talent has never been more in demand. And if you don't lock them in, in these big overall deals, you you lose out on, on getting them onto your platform. And, and you know, when you're spending a lot of money and hiring up a bunch of execs to launch this service in a few months, you got to have, you know, big names producing shows for you. So, you know, it, it made a lot of sense that they were willing to shell out a lot of money for someone like J.J. Abrams. Now, when I talked to your colleague, Tim Goodman, the TV critic at the Hollywood Report, chief TV critic, um, what, he has this theory and he's written about it that, you know, it, there's a little bit of danger in getting behind a big creative, uh, giving a big creative person a bunch of money because you, you're spending money on uh, tried and true talent. But what where are they in their career? And are you going to be missing the money that you could be spending on finding the next J.J. Abrams or Greg Berlanti, who's getting paid 400 million to produce shows for Warner Brothers TV? as another example, or Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes, these these kind of big name producers. One of the things that strikes me about Abrams, though, and I know his previous TV deal was with Warner Brothers, so they ended up kind of like going back to Warner, but he has a movie deal at Paramount that's ending, and apparently that's going to get moved over to be part of the Warner Media thing, is people don't realize just how many TV shows J.J. Abrams has uh, percolating. They're not all written. In fact, most of them are not written or created by J.J. Abrams, but that Bad Robot is involved, sort of deeply involved in it. And so you're not just getting somebody who will create and write a TV show and direct a movie here and there. You're also getting somebody who has built this company that is uh, really productive, like Westworld is a good example. Like J.J. Abrams' name is on Westworld. He, is he is he a writer or creator? No, but his his company produces it. And there are a whole lot more like that. So WarnerMedia is not just getting an auteur here, right? They're getting a whole production company that's been like incredibly prolific and successful. Yeah. I mean, you are paying for the privilege of using that J.J. Abrams or Bad Robot name in the opening credits or closing credits of your TV show. You know, that's really what a lot of this is. Um, although it's worth noting that um, he is working on his first uh, series that he's created since right. Alias called Demimond, and that's for HBO. So, um, 
um, you know, he does still, you know, put his stamp on certain projects. And um, yeah, but, you know, to your point, it is it is a question, right, that these companies have to address. How much do they want to spend big to lock down the, you know, kind of marquee talent versus, you know, finding and kind of building up new talent? I'd argue that a good platform or or media company would, would do a little bit of both. You know, you're seeing that with like, you know, HBO, you know, kind of helped find and and move Issa Rae from the digital world to television. And now they've got an overall deal with her and, you know, she's doing a lot more for them. So in success, you know, you can kind of, you know, do, do both and help make someone into that next, you know, JJ Abrams or Shonda Rhimes or, you know, the next kind of big showrunner. Um, but you know, the other, the other question, and, you know, we're still waiting to hear a lot of details because this deal, you know, as much as we've reported that, you know, Warner's the final, final bidder here. I don't think it's, it's fully done. Um, you know, when, when JJ was at Paramount, he didn't actually do a whole lot for Paramount because he was busy directing Star, Star Wars, Wars movies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if Warner is smart and, and able to, they will, you know, have a part of their, you know, part of paying him $500 million will be for that exclusivity and really making sure that he's coming on board to direct movies for Warner Brothers. Right. I'm sure Paramount feels like they wish they had gotten a little more of his attention on the Star Trek franchise, right? Whereas, you know, instead he sort of stepped away and, and made a couple of Star Wars movies. I do want I mean, there's still a place also, just as, as you should, uh, as you were saying, you know, sort of be cultivating talent while also, you know, like new talent while also using big names. There's also some talent who doesn't want to be pinned down. I've definitely seen interviews in The Hollywood Reporter and elsewhere where people, uh, you know, creators say they really really kind of like the idea that they're free agents and that they can they can guide their projects to destinations where it's more appropriate. And I guess that's the risk if you are J.J. Abrams is, you know, you're getting a lot of money, which is great. But, you know, you your stuff needs to fit into the platforms that Warner Media has. And if you've got a project idea that doesn't really fit. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you lose out, but what you get is guaranteed money. But I can also see why somebody might want to be a free agent and and take, you know, this project over here and this project over there, because something might be a better fit for Netflix and something might be a better fit for a more niche streaming service or cable channel. Yeah, I mean, that's the same argument for why in in some cases it can be good to be a Sony, you know, a a company, a a studio that doesn't have uh, a a network that they have to uh, sell into. They can kind of play the field. Um, you know, but I would also argue that that's, uh, you know, if you if you had looked at the JJ deal before the AT and T acquisition of Warner Brothers, maybe it wouldn't have been as appealing. Right. But now that they're this kind of you know multi pronged company with all these different distribution opportunities, including this upcoming streaming service, that starts to be a lot more compelling to a creative uh, like a JJ Abrams because yes, you're more limited, but you're also you know you've got a pretty big playing field yeah, to work with within one company. It's it's a it's a big pond that the big fish is swimming in because of all of this. What what is your take while we're on this subject about sort of where Warner Media is in general? I know you wrote a piece. Uh, about a week ago about, you know, a bunch of new hires that they're making over there. They hired uh, the the person who was running Paul Feig's production company, and she's now uh, going to be a Warner Media executive. There have been a bunch of other hires recently in original comedy and animated and nonfiction and kids. Uh, where are they? Because obviously it's all <laughs> happening underneath the surface there. But what what is your read on sort of like how AT&T is getting this all together and getting toward the point where they're going to they're going to get, you know, because it's obviously going to be a lot different from, you know, what it's been with their assorted cable and, uh, you know, and other outlets. Yeah, I mean, they took an interesting approach, right? They came out last year and said, we're doing this streaming service and here's how we're envisioning it. And they gave away a lot of information about the plan. You know, it was going to be this kind of tiered structure and, you know, different price points for different kinds of consumers who want different things. And, you know, whereas like an Apple has been really, really secretive about what their vision for this service is, uh, 
Warner Media's executives have have been much more forthcoming. Then there was a lot of shakeup, right? It, you know, they brought in uh, Bob Greenblatt, who is now overseeing a portfolio of TV networks that includes HBO. Uh, Richard Plepler, um, the longtime leader of HBO, left. Um, Kevin Sujahara was ousted from Warner Brothers. There's been a lot of kind of executive shakeup at the top, and so I do think that there's still kind of figuring things out. I mean, that's behind the rash of headlines you've seen over the last couple weeks about different possible pricing and names and strategies. You know, they're kind of weighing all of those different decisions right now. And you, you it's easy to say, oh, sure, we're going to make a bunch of shows and put them up on a service. But then you, you also have to figure out, okay, well, are we going to release them in like the binge model, like Netflix? Are we going to do it weekly? Uh, what's the cadence? How often do we want to have new programming? And are we going to do something every Friday like Netflix, you know, every once a month? Like these are all decisions that every one of these streaming services has to grapple with and figure out. And, you know, so that's kind of what they're going through right now. And, you know, along the way, they're still hiring up a bunch of executives. I mean, everything we've heard is that the initial kind of launch here in Q4 of 2019 will be kind of the beta product. It'll be the basic service. And then in 2020, we'll start to get at some of this original programming. And that's because they're still hiring those executives and, you know, still putting into place a lot of their plans for that original programming. So there's a lot we still need to see. Plus, now we've also kind of started to hear John Stanky, uh, the CEO of Warner Media, has come out and said, well, maybe that three-tier structure doesn't make as much sense, yeah. and maybe we're going to do something different. So, you know, it, it, there's there's benefits uh, to being more open about your plans early, but there's also downsides, which is that if you shift gears, you know, people are going to write about it and talk about right, it. Right, they're going to say you're being inconsistent, even though it's probably a better thing to, like, I mean, Disney announces Disney plus and they put that low price on it and everybody looks at warner media and says well you want to have multi-tiers and you want to include hbo but you're already charging 15 dollars a month for hbo so how do you charge less for a streaming service and include hbo and their Mm -hmm. answer was "Mm, we'll get back to you on that and you know if i were them i would probably start to say well maybe you know do we do HBO as a premium add-on to our existing service so we can price the other service low? Because otherwise, if they cut the price of HBO, they're going to turn away an enormous amount of revenue and they're going to make their cable partners angry and all of these things. And it's, you know, all because Disney came out and, you know, they played they they played that card of having the, what is it, $6, $7 a month uh, opening price for Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I think that Disney's pricing of Disney Plus was much more significant for Warner Media and for whatever NBC ends up doing than it was for Apple or for Netflix, really. You know, uh, maybe it was significant for Apple, too, because they hadn't priced it yet. But, you know, the the narrative around Disney Plus pricing was, oh, you know, they're undercutting Netflix. And I was like, well, you know, no, they're undercutting all these other streaming services that have yet to price, have yet to launch. And, you know, making it really challenging for those companies to figure out how to, you know, position their services. So speaking of Disney, Plus, uh, there was another story. I'm going to link to a lot of Hollywood Reporter this week, which is just just fine. It's just Great. right to do that. Uh, it was a survey by a research group that was shown exclusively to the Hollywood Reporter about customer awareness of Disney Plus, and it's pretty amazing because what it found is that uh, 22% of the thousand people surveyed were likely or highly likely to subscribe to Disney Plus. And in the key demographics of 18 to 24-year-olds and households with children, uh, it was even more. Uh, 34% of 18 to 24-year-olds said they intended to subscribe. 36% of households with children agreed with that. This is, uh, and those there's not a lot of crossover between those demographics. So th- basically the story here is the people who you'd expect to sign up for Disney Plus are aware of it and excited about it and that, you know, the service hasn't even launched yet and it starts to feel like um, maybe our instincts that it was going to be huge are right. Do you you think so? Absolutely. I mean, and then that was followed up by a um, a note from Morgan Stanley where they um, estimated that Disney could have more than 130 million subscribers by 2024 for all of its different products. Uh, So Hulu and um, ESPN ESPN Plus Plus, and Disney Plus, um, which, you know, is very in line with what Disney's been saying. But for a third party to agree with them and say, oh, yeah, this is going to be big really quickly, um, you know, sent the, the stock up. Um, 
so of course, I mean, listen, Disney has the best branding of all of these um, companies, and they've been really smart about how they, um, you know, how they brand over the years. I mean, Lucasfilm, Star Wars, Pixar, Marvel, these are brands that consumers have a deep affinity with and know what they're getting, and they know that they're Disney brands. And, you know, I have long kind of said, I think the biggest challenge for these other services, whether a Warner Media or an NBC Universal, is that the average consumer isn't necessarily paying attention to the fact that a show like Friends, which is now considered a Netflix show, um, you know, originally aired on NBC, uh, but was produced by Warner Brothers, you know, that, the, and that, that's complicated. And so if Friends pops up on the Warner, Warner Media streaming service eventually, that may take people a while to kind of recognize Friends as a as a Warner Media show. That's not going to be the problem for Disney. They're never going to have that issue, and that automatically gives them a leg up in this race. Now, I mean, the the counterpoint is that you know a, a person without children who's maybe not that into Star Wars might not be the target demo for this. May not be interested in this, but. But Disney's making the the bet that there are enough people out there with an affinity to their brands that they'll get a lot of people signed up really quickly. All right. Sounds good. Uh, I look forward to that service. It'll be really interesting to see what happens when it launches. Um, we got a lot more to talk about, but first I want to take a quick break and tell everybody about our second sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Sometimes cybercrime seems like something out of the movies. It's hard to imagine someone trying to get a hold of your information, that hacker it's like, uh, ooh, I've got you now. Ha, ha, ha. Guess what? People do steal data on the internet, and public Wi-Fi is a great place to do it because the data is unencrypted. So what you need to do is encrypt it yourself, and you need ExpressVPN to do that. That will make your password and credit card numbers uh, protected and secret and not something that's just flying over the link. Also, it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. It encrypts your data. It hides your public IP address. They use your IP address to track you and to show different ads for you and to know about your behavior and target you. You can become completely beneath the service and private by using ExpressVPN. And the apps run seamlessly in the background of your device. You turn it on with one click. It couldn't be easier. I have it on my iPad. I do one tap and that's it. I am encrypted when I'm at Starbucks uh, anywhere and nobody can nose around my stuff. So uh, check it out. It's rated number one VPN service by TechRadar. That's pretty good. And comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So for less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I've got and get greater peace of mind. If you've ever used public Wi-Fi, uh, you know, don't do that without a VPN. You really shouldn't do that. Check out ExpressVPN today by going to expressvpn.com slash Download podcast to learn more. Protect your online activity today and get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash download podcast. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash download podcast for three months free with a one year package. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting download and all of Relay FM. All right, this is a uh, left turn, but I wanted to talk to you about Adam Sandler for a minute. You know, there comes a time in everyone's life when they have to have to talk about Adam Sandler and Netflix, uh, which so rarely releases data, um, but did a tweet the other day saying that Adam Sandler's new original movie for Netflix with Jennifer Aniston, Murder Mystery, was viewed by nearly 31 million accounts in three days. Now, of course, no one can verify this. It's just Netflix saying stuff. But uh, what was your reaction to this? Like, it is fascinating to see the things, the claims that Netflix bothers making about its content. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you say they rarely release these numbers, but they're starting to more and more. And it's it's very selective, right? You know, super selective. It's, yeah, it's Bird Box. It's, you know, it's Adam Sandler. Like, you know, they're choosing when to release these numbers. And I do think it's going to start to pose a bit of a problem for them because, you know, if you're a creator, you know, um, and you don't get that kind of disclosure, then you're probably sitting there going, oh, man, well, does was my movie not successful? Was Netflix not happy with it? You know, um, and 
and I, I am curious to see if it starts to kind of, I don't know, get written into contracts. Like you've got to, you know, disclose the viewership of my movie if it's over a certain amount or, you know, if it reaches a certain threshold. And so it will be interesting to continue to track kind of when and how Netflix is releasing these numbers. Uh, anyway, Adam Sandler apparently is doing doing great. And also the power of like not promoting. I didn't know this thing existed until I opened Netflix and saw it. And I thought, is that a Netflix original? I mean, it's Adam Sandler. It probably is, but I didn't really know. And that's the power of Netflix, right? You open Netflix and it, and they're promoting this thing and people watch it, which is pretty amazing. They do such a good job with that. I mean, same thing with Roma. I, I don't know about you, but we, here in Los Angeles, a lot of people, when they turned on their Netflixes, they got a um, kind of a Roma backdrop yeah. before you would click on your account. Um, you know, like that's super powerful. And again, it goes back to like Netflix can really like move the levers on these different shows and movies and what works and what doesn't. And so that's why I think that you have to be careful about reading into these numbers because, yeah, if you make murder mystery the first thing that everyone sees when they turn on netflix of course people are going to check it out you know but what about that movie or that tv show that didn't get that kind of promotion um that's that's an interesting dynamic yeah uh adam sandler go figure but they were obviously having success there um want to mention another player here so sony has been long considered a possibility. You mentioned them earlier because they're independent. They, they're just a studio. They don't have um, much in the way of a streaming service. I guess they, they own Crackle. Isn't that right? That's what they've got? Well, um, but they, they recently um, sold it they, to oh, they sold Crackle. Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, yeah, which is Good a thing. Knowledge. Um, Amazing. And they're going to now jointly operate it as a joint venture All between right. these two companies. So, so there's this yeah. question of like, what is Sony's business going forward? Obviously, they've got the whole electronics business, and then they've got this entertainment business, and they've got Sony Pictures and and uh, you know a bunch of studios under that. Um, so there was a story this week about how a an activist investor is kind of uh, trying to egg on the idea of Sony splitting in two and sort of like sectioning off its tech business from its entertainment business. And I've definitely talked to people who've said they think this is sort of a transparent attempt to get the entertainment business off in a place where it can be then sold off to somebody, um, which, you know, people have talked about that, but it's always this complication of like, oh, yeah, but they also make TVs and PlayStations and things like that. And the answer would be, well, what if they didn't? Then you could just sell it off to one of the giants and investors could make money. I don't know if there's anything really happening here other than speculation, but it is interesting that people keep bringing up Sony as one of these companies that sort of like, does it fit in a world where there are so many of these giant media companies that are trying to compete with one another. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing how quickly the landscape has shifted around a Sony um, as these mergers have happened. And you're right, you know, this has long been kind of the chatter that, oh, should the uh, studio get spun out and sold? And, you know, anytime there's talk of, will a tech player buy a studio? You know, will Netflix, will Apple, will Google, whoever, you know, buy a studio? Sony is often one of those that's suggested because they are an intern. Uh, a, an independent player. Um, and, and yeah, this seems like kind of the latest attempt to um, kind of start setting something like that up. So whether it happens, you know, who knows? Again, this has been long talked about. Um, but it is interesting because under Sony's new CEO, it does seem like there have been attempts to have a lot more cross-pollination between all of those different divisions. Um, we recently reported about the launch of a studio that's going to start adapting um, the video game properties, PlayStation properties for film and television. Um, you know, so it, it, there's, there is a lot of interesting opportunity for, for all those units to come together and, and be, you know, kind of as a sum total bigger thing than they are, you know, as individual parts that hasn't always necessarily worked well in the past. So we'll see if this new person can, this new chief can kind of, you know, maybe do that more effectively in a way that it stops this kind of chatter. It is fascinating. It's something I didn't even have in our show notes, but I've, I've definitely seen some rumblings out there about, you know, the ongoing soap opera between CBS and Viacom, which are these kind of like cousin companies that were once one and then got split apart and maybe coming back together. And so much of the speculation about that is not like, well, what would that mean to run it as one company, but has been, well, who would that get 
sold, who would buy that? Who would sell? Like everybody seems to be looking at everything now and saying one of these giants is going to eat up all of these smaller companies. I don't know if that's actually going to bear out, but it is funny that that is so much of the conversation these days. Yeah, or who would they buy? Right? You know, there or, was some speculation yep. around stars and exactly because you know, the whole things, Lionsgate so. MGM. That's another one of these small players that could get swept up into something larger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is that you know, in all the chatter around these different mergers, it's not you know, could this happen? It's when will it happen? Because it's become so clear that in order to compete against Disney Fox, against Warner Media, against these big tech giants, you have to have that kind of scale. And um, there's only way you can do that is by joining forces. So, you know, it makes so much sense for CBS and Viacom to come together that at this point, you know, almost an inevitability that it will happen if they can figure out the deal terms and, um, you know, hmm. make it make it make sense. Uh, I've got a couple other stories I wanted to touch on really quickly with you. One of them is a story you wrote about uh, we've, we've talked a lot about how streaming services uh, or, and especially like more like social media and social services getting into original content have not had a lot of luck. YouTube has definitely struggled with that. Facebook has struggled with that. Um, and you wrote a piece about how um, Snapchat is actually having success with original content. And these are short vertical videos that are being viewed on Snapchat and that they're actually doing pretty well. And I hadn't even heard about this because I'm an old person who doesn't use Snapchat, but I I thought this was really interesting that maybe this is something about this is making it more successful than some of these other attempts to do original content on these streaming, uh, you know, sort of social services. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way Snapchat has approached original programming from the get-go has been different. You know, they've always been a closed platform. You know, Discover is their kind of media platform where you can read stories and interactive content and watch shows. That is not something that anyone can just be part of. You have to be approved and kind of welcomed into that um, section of Snapchat, which means that they, you know, can treat content differently than a YouTube or a Facebook. And or Twitter or any of these other places that are, you know, quote unquote, you know, kind of free, you know, platforms user generated and have to be very careful about that because they don't want to suddenly be labeled a media company and have to deal with um, the issues that come with that. So, you know, from the start, Snapchat has approached programming differently. They also got into it a lot earlier. I mean, they've been experimenting for a long time. I watched a show a couple years ago uh, created by um, the da- daughter of Steven Spielberg um, that was short-lived and kind of fun and interesting. Um, you know, it was kind of a test for Snapchat. Would, will scripted comedy work for them? Um, and then they kind of dabbled in, in other areas, and now they've kind of come back to this idea of, of scripted programming. And so the other thing that they're doing that I think is really smart is, you know, really leaning into the platform. So, you know, they're not trying to get you to watch a half an hour show on your phone. They're getting you to watch, you know, these, yeah, kind of, you know, three to five, seven minute, you know, shows. And oftentimes they're very dynamic in the way that, you know, you hold your phone. So it's, it's vertical video. Um, oftentimes shots are kind of stacked up upon each other because you, you don't have the wide shot. You can't do the wide shot in the same way. And they play with the fact that you're holding your phone. So maybe, you know, in the story, someone's also, holding a phone and text messages are appearing or, you know, different things. Mm. And so it just seems like they've been a little bit smarter about it than others. And it's still really early. I mean, these numbers are promising, but again, you know, selective data. So, you know, you can't read too much into them. Um, But, you know, in all the talk right now about um, the kind of return of short form with the launch of Quibi next year, Jeffrey Katzenberg's new service, I, I think it's interesting to look at, you know, Snapchat and kind of where they've fallen, you know, instead of doing what Quibi is doing, which is, you know, let's take essentially what would be a movie and chop it up into, you know, 10 minute chunks and release them um, as installments, chapters, I think they're calling them. You mm. know, Snapchat is leaning t- into the idea of let's create a story that's really meant to be told in five minute bits and meant to be told on your phone. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's always going to be more successful, right? Not trying to stick the last medium into the next medium, but it's like uh, the classic example is when TV started and they're like, we'll put 
uh, plays on television. It's like that. Nope, that's not TV is not a play and Snapchat is not a movie theater. And, right. uh, you know, I think they're, they're going to have more success trying to actually appeal to the medium that they're they're on. That's yeah. And these things take time, right? You yeah. know, TV didn't become TV until, you know, many years into its existence. Like, you know, you have to learn what the medium is meant for and what right. works best in that medium and adapt to it. And right now, Snapchat seems to be doing most of that. So it'll be interesting to, to watch and see if this can really, truly become a success for them. I mean, hard to argue that any of these things that they've done are true breakouts because they haven't quite reached that kind of mass pop culture awareness yet. But but they're certainly making strides there and, and being really smart about how they're approaching content. All right. Uh, speaking of different uh, mediums, uh, before we go, one last story I wanted to mention that you wrote, which is about the Obamas making a deal with Spotify to do podcasts. Now, they already made a deal with Netflix to do video on Netflix, but they've also made this deal with Spotify for podcasts. And I just think this is really interesting as my everything I thought about Netflix goes here too, which is like, what's the content? Is it going to be take your medicine? Is it going to be entertaining? How do you, uh, you know, do for a former president to have these kinds of brand extensions? It's just kind of fascinating that, that they're diving in and saying, okay, it's new media world and we're going to do we're going to produce podcasts and we're going to produce Netflix shows. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of fascinating. I, this was the Netflix deal. I was not too surprised by this one. I was a little more surprised by that. They would make a, a podcast deal, but Spotify obviously has the checkbook out right now. So it seems like a good time. Yeah, I mean, this is truly uncharted territory, right? Like such a young president coming out of uh, that time and and seeking kind of a new platform, a new way to reach people. Um, and, and we don't know what, what this is all going to look like yet. Now, the the slate that they've announced of, of projects they're doing for Netflix is really encouraging that, you know, they are going to try to make this entertainment interesting, though it might all be a little kind of feel good or kind of, you know, relate to the worldview that they have. Um, so, you know, it, it makes me hopeful for what they can do in the podcasting space too. Um, and, you know, one interesting thing is, is that Spotify was, was, particular to note in the press release that they will lend their voices. So you can kind of extrapolate what that means. Sure. Maybe we will get a, a show hosted by one of the Obamas. Probably not everything will have them, um, you know, sure. in front of the microphone. But that's a really interesting idea that you could really kind of hear from them um, more than just have, you know, kind of their creative auspices all over the project. So, um, but more than that, this is just a huge deal for, for Spotify, right? You know, they, they've bought a couple of podcast companies. They've signaled that this is a focus for them. No better way to really show that they're serious about it than to go do a deal with the most in-demand, you know, people out there, the Obamas. So uh, I think it, it perked up a lot of people's ears and and made a lot of people kind of take notice of Spotify in a way um, that maybe they they hadn't even with the um, with just the acquisitions that they're doing and um, now the question is you know who who follows right we've not seen Apple really get into the original podcasting space. I wonder how long they can sit back and watch others do that um, and when they decide they also need to start. Um, you know, going out and seeking uh, these kinds of big splashy deals. Yeah, because right now they have the most popular podcast app, but they have decided to sort of take a very hands-off approach to podcasting and not... I'm surprised, too, that they haven't done original audio programming either through Apple Music or directly in their podcast app. But with their attention to services and services revenue, it's kind of hard to believe that they wouldn't uh, look you know, under that rock, too, as they're searching for new sources of uh, ways to get people in their ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, listen, podcasting is still a really small industry. And and so for Apple, it's probably, you know, just maybe not meaningful enough yet for them to feel like they need to play in that space. But Apple is really good at being the second or third to fourth to enter a space and then dominating it. So, you know, you certainly can't count, count them out. Plus, they've sure. got the, the added benefit of just immediately being on so many people's phones, whereas Spotify... You know, while it has a huge uh, install base, it doesn't um, necessarily have that same advantage. So, you know, for them, it may be a little bit more imperative to strike these exclusive deals uh, off the bat. For sure. Um, and you're right about uh, Apple. I, having talked to people inside Apple, um, you know, Apple's Apple's share of mind of mind in podcasting is enormous. They're an enormous player, but mm -hmm. inside Apple, podcasting is 
a very small part of what they do. And it's a funny kind of disparity between how huge they are to the podcast market. But what's it's just such a small part of Apple's business. It's almost nothing. And mm-hmm. that's uh, it's fascinating to see that. So on the inside, they may not uh, they not be may not be that that interested. But uh, we'll watch it. But we got we got former presidents making podcast content deals. So anything could happen. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on download. It has been great to talk to you about all these different subjects. There's so much going on every week. And uh, I guess people, uh, how, how people, how do they find you and the stuff that you're writing about on an ongoing basis? Yeah, everything I write goes on the hollywoodreporter.com. And I tweet most of it at at Nat Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on download this week. Thank you. Oh, that sound means Stephen Hackett has returned. That was really jarring. What did you do to me? Look, this box is not big enough for you and me and a guest, so you had to go. Yeah. Wow. I feel fuzzy everywhere. Uh, Very strange. Oh, no. Are you a fuzzy puppy? Because it's time (laughs) for the fuzzy puppy update. Uh, This came to us from listener Sarah. Thank you, listener Sarah. This is a story from New Zealand uh, where, and I know this is going to sound scary, but it, it all is good. Um a uh there was a a badly injured woman um she got in a car crash her car tumbled 45 meters down a steep gully and she was stuck in the car but who was with her her five-year-old border collie cross named pat um she dragged herself out of the driver's side window and sheltered under a bush she was there for three nights but her dog kept her warm like laid on her and kept her warm in the nights and barked when people came near. And that's how they found her at the bottom of the gully was that they heard the dog and uh, her friends credit the not only her the strong will of the woman, but the devotion of her dog who made sure that she was OK and took care of her and made the noise that led to her rescue. And that's pretty wow. awesome. So good job. That- border collie cross pat good job that's that's amazing it really is yeah i like it so see it turned around there as often the fuzzy puppy updates do they start out with something bad but then it warms your heart by the end all right well that ends this episode of download i'm glad that i've released steven from his prison <laughs> thank you for being here please don't do it again okay. i can't take another another uh, phase change but we will be back with another episode of download next week And until then, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.